Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning to you. We are continuing to make our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and today we find ourselves in chapter 5. If you turn there with me, either in your Bible or in your worship guide, if you're able to stand for the reading of Romans 5, I'll ask you to do so to honor God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we may also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I have been suggesting as we've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans that to understand this letter correctly, you have to understand the overall bent, uh, the direction that Paul is coming from. And Paul's agenda is to argue for something that really, I think if you were sitting in the first century, would have seemed very scandalous, perhaps even more so than it does to us. And we sit on the other side of much explanation and much thinking throughout church history and having the New Testament. But here you have in the first century this message that 
You know what? This God of the Old Testament, everything that has gone forward in the Old Testament, all of the promises have been fulfilled in one man hanging on a cross, dying, and being raised from the dead three days later. Everything that God has talked about for uh, over a thousand years in this massive tome, all of it comes to a point and to fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you might be able to imagine, if you're living in the first century, the reaction of people who are going to be hearing this you know, may be an, an inclination to believe as the Spirit works, but there also had to be a, really? That's where it was all going. And that's the fulfillment of everything that has been foretold and prophesied. This one death and resurrection of one man in the middle of history. And Paul wants to say, yes, this is exactly the argument that I am making. And so if we're going to understand Romans 5, we have to situate it to some extent in the letter of Romans as a whole. And I've been thinking a lot as um, as I've been thinking about Romans 5 this week and what Paul has already addressed in Romans, that a helpful way to look at it is, is thinking of, of two roads. Because this is how Paul starts his letter, is talking about two different roads. He begins in chapter 1 by saying there's the road of the Gentiles, anybody who's not Jewish. And the road of the Gentiles is such that they have not recognized, they have not properly responded to the revelation of God in creation. They have not honored the Creator. Instead, they've decided to give up that knowledge and to increasingly worship the creation. And in ancient days, that was carving things out of trees or stones and worshiping them. Today, it would be worshiping things like money or power or control, things that we make gods out of. This is the Gentile road. But then Paul moves on and says there's also a Jewish road. And the Jewish road is somewhat special because God has actually entered into that road. He's disclosed Himself in a special way. He's given special revelation of Himself. You can think of the Mosaic Law to the Jewish people. But he says this road also has not worked out well because the law was intended to help Israel understand that... Uh, they're in trouble. They need God more than they think they do. It was meant to trap and, and define sin. But instead, the Jews tended to think, well, as long as I'm walking according to the law, I'm just fine. I'm good. I, 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 I'm, I'm in an okay place. And Paul says, no, you've never come close enough to embodying the law to actually be in good standing with God. And so where you know maybe a, a, a faithful Jew in the first century would have thought, well, I'm obeying the law, I'm in good standing with God. Paul says both to the Gentile and to the Jew, no, you're both condemned. There's nothing but utter failure. You haven't been faithful to whatever standard you've imposed on yourself as a Gentile. You haven't been faithful to the standard that God has imposed as a Jew. And so everyone stands condemned guilty in the dock of judgment. Now, you might think, well, this, this creates a very big problem for me if I stand condemned, and that's the situation of humanity. And yes, it does, but that's actually not what Paul wants to deal with. Paul then realizes that a very big problem has been created not just for humanity, but for God Himself. How so? God can condemn everyone. Great. Let's annihilate the earth. And God will be the just judge who judges sin rightfully. All well and good. But God's created this problem for Himself. He wasn't very smart because He's made wild promises in the Old Testament of the redemption of His people. The things that will be made whole, that things will be restored. And if He annihilates everyone, suddenly God isn't faithful to His promises. 
But if he fulfills his promises and actually brings restoration, that means he will have to forgive sin. But if sin isn't punished, then he ceases to be the just judge. And he's forsaken his justice. Either way, God compromises his character. And if God compromises his character, he's no longer worthy of being worshipped as God. He's really actually quite human rather than quite godly. This is a huge problem. It seems like a no-win scenario. And then Paul says, God has threaded the needle. He's threaded the needle in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the death, God's wrath is satisfied. Sin is atoned for. And the resurrection is the promise and the fulfillment that all things will be made new. It's a marvel. It's astonishing that, that this thing that seems so, so incomprehensible, so there's no way forward God breaks in the midst of. And this is what Paul has to argue for. And this is where we actually find ourselves as we enter Romans chapter 5, that Paul is continuing to unpack this idea that God is being faithful and is actually fulfilling all of his promises in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the chapter breaks up quite nicely into two ideas. And those are the two ideas that we're going to consider this morning. Number one, what resurrection means for you on a more individual scale. And number two, what resurrection means for the story, for God's story at large. So the first half is really what resurrection means for you. The second half is what resurrection means for God's story or the story of redemptive history. So what does resurrection mean for you? Well, look with me at verse 1. Paul says that you are justified by faith. By justified, Paul means that you are no longer in the dock. You're no longer under judgment. You have been excused. You've been found uh, right in God's eyes. And by faith, you know, if you've been around Trinity Harbor a little while, you know I have a pet peeve, and my pet peeve is that I think mo- a lot of the history of the church in the 20th century has really perverted the notion of faith, right? Uh, we tend to, we have this national, perhaps, inkling in evangelicalism that faith just means, oh, I sent to an idea. So when you read the word faith, I would much prefer that you, you kind of throw in the word trust. We're talking about something that is relational, something that is defined by actually commit believing in God to the extent that you actually say, yes, God is fulfilling His promises. He has my best interests at heart. I entrust my life to Him. It's been paid for with a price. So being justified by faith is really being, you're justified. God has made you right. And the way that you experience that and the way that that plays out in your life is by trusting in Him, by following after Him. Okay. So, uh, well, what difference does it make that you are justified by faith? What are we talking about? Why is this significant? First, uh, Paul's going to point out three aspects, three really good things about being justified by faith. And the first one is that you have peace with God. In verse 10, we're identified as God's enemies. Right? Paul's already told us in chapter 3 that we fall short of His glory. And uh, our relationship is characterized as one of alienation, one of hostility with the living God, which should make us uncomfortable. Yet despite this condition, God says, I am going to establish peace between my enemy and myself. The first thing that you have as a result of justification by faith is peace with God. Now, how can that be possible? That God would be at peace with you because at the right time, Jesus Christ died for you. Right? Let's let's think about that for a moment. Have you ever really known such a beautiful expression of God's of love in general? 
but alone of God's love. That God commits Himself to a road of death on your behalf. I've always been impressed um, with the story of uh, Air Florida Flight 90, which I'm, I think I actually remember on the news. I'm not positive. It was in 1982, so some of you will, will probably remember that um, in January of 1982, uh, Boeing 737 was bound from Washington, D.C. to Tampa, Florida. And due actually to a number of pilot errors, uh, while they were sitting on the tarmac, ice had built up on the wings. And so very shortly after the plane had taken off, it couldn't gain any altitude and started to descend uncontrollably back to, uh, to, the, to the ground. It crashed into the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C. and plunged into the ice-encrusted waters of the Potomac River. Of the 74 passengers that were on board, only six um, uh, surfaced from the wreck. And uh, so, of course, rescue crews start arriving. Um, and But immediately, this, this dramatic problem is, is realized too well. There are a number of dramatic problems going on at the same time. One is the water's at one degree above freezing. So the human body can survive about 30 minutes in waters that temperature before you will freeze to death. The rescue crews arrive very quickly on the scene, but they can't get their boats to the wreckage and the people in the middle of the water because of the huge ice chunks that are floating through the water. So they're watching helplessly as people are freezing to death and, and drowning in the wreckage. Eventually, about 20 minutes in, right, we're in a fair bit of time, uh, a rescue helicopter arrives, and it's in the middle of a storm, and they start lowering uh, a line with a buoy on it that people are grabbing onto, and they're being dragged to the side of the river where they can be rescued. But there's additional problems with that. Some of the people um, don't realize it until afterward, but they're, they're injured. So there's one man who gets an arm through the buoy, and he's trying to help a woman as they're being dragged across the top of the river and ice, but he can't hang on to her. And only afterwards would he realize that every bone in his hand and arm had been broken. But because of the shock and cold, he had no idea. And so he keeps dropping this woman. And this woman, um, then they try to rescue her uh, um, directly. And she can't, um, so by this time she's so cold, she can't really use her muscles. So you, there's actually footage on YouTube, which is, is fantastic of this part of the story. She, she's hanging on to to the to the life we're trying to but she can't so she keeps she'll go a couple feet and then she'll just fall helplessly back into the water so I, by this time a crowd had gathered and was watching this tragedy unfold and were you know people had pulled over to see if there was anything that they could do to help and there were several heroes that day several really neat stories but one uh, was the story of Roger Scutnik who at the time was a congressional aide and he's standing on the side of the river and this woman is 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 going to be the fifth person I think to be to be pulled out. The sixth one wouldn't be pulled out. And she's not making it. She's, she's trying to hang on and she keeps dropping into the water and it's at the point where she basically can't even lift an arm to grab the ring. And the crowd is standing there watching her drown. And Skutnik, overcome with human compassion, uh, throws off his jacket and his shoes and he plunges into the river and swims out to her and grabs her and pulls her back to the shore and she survives. I think, man, what? What an amazing act of human compassion and generosity toward a stranger when that's a pretty dangerous thing to do, to jump into water that's one degree above freezing. But now cast it in the light of what Paul is talking about, that yeah, somebody might 
risk themselves for a good person, but what about risking yourself for an enemy? Imagine that that this woman is back at the wreckage, that she hasn't made any distance, and Skutnik sees it, and, and he knows that he can get there, and he knows that he can fasten a line around her under arms so she should be lifted to safety, but he also knows that he's not going to make it back. And then further imagine that the woman is a meth dealer at the local middle school, and three kids have died as a result of her trade. Imagine that Skutnik is a really good human being, a good family man, has kids himself. Does he jump in then to rescue the woman? You think, no, that's crazy. That's not a good exchange. Why would Skutnik lay down his life for a woman like that? But then you have to think that it's not half as crazy as God dying on a cross for you. It doesn't even come close. The first thing that we have as a result of justification by faith is peace with God. The second thing that we have, according to Paul in verse 2, is that we have access to God's grace, to His kindness, to His compassion, to His love toward us that is undeserved. And the idea here is that um, the language communicates the idea that the priest would have access unhindered to the, the inner sanctuary of the temple or that a noble person would have access to the king's chamber unhindered. Um, and you would think, well, we're not worthy of having access to the king. How in the world can we just... This unmitigated un, 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 un access that we can come to God and actually have a relationship with Him, that His grace is extended to us in that way, if you really think about it, it should make you feel uncomfortable to some extent. And yet this is, this is what God does. Why? Because what's the underlying reason over and over again in Romans? God loves you. He says, yes, you were an alienated child, but now I have brought you near. I have made peace, and you have un, unmitigated access to my grace to come unto Him. And some of you are very reluctant to draw near to God. In your sin and in your shame and in your guilt, you keep a distance because you think that you are not worthy. And in that, you believe something that is biblically not true. That God in His love and mercy for you wants you to come without reservation so that you continue to enjoy His grace. Third, the kindness gives us, uh, this kindness gives us reason to rejoice or boast. Um, and remember, just not long ago in Romans, Paul has told us that we cannot boast in ourselves. In fact, we have nothing to boast about. But now he's saying, yes, you do have something to boast about in Jesus Christ. Something that should you should erupt with joy and exuberance. Because even though you've fallen short of God's glory, now you hope, you have the hope of the glory of God. Now you have been restored so that you can participate in a right way in the ordering and living out in creation to the honor and glory of God. The, the role that was lost by Adam in the garden is now restored to you. And in that, there is much joy. Now, you might think, well, this is a great promise that will come true when we die or Jesus comes back, but that's not Paul's agenda at all. Paul is almost overcome with the sense of what's happening and what is true right now as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus that he immediately goes in and says, this is something that is going to be played out right now. And if you understand how it's played out, it causes you not to lament your sufferings, but to rejoice in your sufferings. This is the road that is given hope by Christ. Paul writes that as we go through our sufferings and we gauge them with faithfulness, suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope, 
And hope is that which fuels life. Your hope in God will not be put to shame because it is God Himself who gives you the Spirit as a testimony to to the hope that you have, to what actually will come about. And a, a testimony to you of what has happened in Jesus Christ is reality. I don't know about you, but I don't like suffering. But... As we look at the image of Christ and as we look at the way in which God enters into this world, we realize that suffering is really the tool, is the means by which we experience grace. And without suffering, I think grace is something that is more of a foreign notion to us. And Paul paints the picture here that if you, if you believe that just as God redeems Christ's suffering, He will redeem your suffering, and suffering will actually be a tool by which to, to make you more like Jesus, then you can have great confidence and you see your suffering produce character and character endurance or vice versa and then character hope. I got them backwards there for a moment. I was uh, thinking about how quick when I'm in suffering I might turn to something else. How easy it is for me to want to avoid that and to not walk through it faithfully, but to either the temptation to anesthetize the pain or the temptation to choose a different course that might involve less suffering. All of these things are always weighing upon us. And I read a, a fascinating article uh, this week about Olympians. As, uh, the Winter Olympians are gathering in Sochi to compete against one another. Uh, this article was talking about what, what is really required to be an Olympic athlete. Right? Perhaps many of you dreamed as a child of being an Olympic athlete. And the thing that caught me off guard in this article was... Um, the argument that the article was making is that, you know, the, the, the singular most talented, most gifted athlete uh, probably is not going to be the Olympian. And I thought, that's crazy. Surely they're the most gifted, strongest, fastest, taught, whatever, in their respective sport. But the article went on to say, and it was interviewing a number of different Olympians, it said, no, to, to actually make it to the Olympics is such an incredibly long road that requires such a degree of discipline that there are a number of more gifted athletes that simply don't have the discipline and commitment who drop by the wayside over time. And the person who makes it to compete in the Olympics is the person who both has the natural physical abilities but also has a huge portion of discipline and motivation that keeps them moving through the hardness of the pursuit. Just to give you a taste, they, uh, they were talking with Dorothy Hamill who won the uh, 1976 gold medal uh, for figure skating. And um, and you, you have to be a little bit older, too, um, because in 1976 you had to do the compulsory component, which doesn't exist anymore in figure skating. If you're a figure skating fan, now it's all just the big show. But the compulsory component, if you remember it, they would show it very briefly, and the reason that they got rid of it is because no one liked to watch it. It's incredibly boring. Uh, but the compulsory component was you had to skate uh, the most perfect geometric shapes in the ice that you could. It was all about control, and so you'd have to do a perfect circle. You'd have to do a perfect figure eight. And judges would stand around and watch this, and of course it's nothing that anybody ever saw. But if you did poorly in the compulsory component, you wouldn't be able to medal. And so Hamill uh, found this the most difficult of... Uh, 
of her task and had to spend hours and hours and hours doing it where someone who might have been a more gifted skater simply wasn't willing to do it. She, she uh, says full days of training consisted of four hours of practicing compulsory figures, just doing the shapes, then two hours of free skating, then running through the short program and the long program, and then repeat the same thing day in and day out for uh, the better part of a decade. Similarly, a, a recent article was looking at um, a school for Olympic snowboarders. A typical day. Up at dawn, stretch, watch video of the previous day, hit the slopes till lunch, go to class, do more conditioning, eat dinner, and then go to study hall for an hour and a half. At most, they get about an hour of free time a day, and it's usually used for homework. And so we're talking about the number of athletes who drop out, even though they're more gifted, because they're unwilling to actually go through the suffering that is required to reach the hope of Olympic gold. I thought, my goodness, how... You know, what a picture of what it means to be willing to endure this suffering. But if you do, for these Olympic athletes, it produces such endurance so that they're able to do this day in and day out and to give up all kinds of things, to say no to almost everything else in their life. And that, that endurance produces character. And that character is what is tested in places like Sochi and then ultimately the hope of Olympic gold. It's such a beautiful course, but who, who has the, the discipline to stay on that kind of course? Incredibly few people. And this is part of the joy of what Paul's talking about. You know, if we draw a rough analogy, what Paul is saying is, yeah, God's already given you Olympic gold in Christ. And now he just wants you to figure out what it means to actually have that fleshed out in your life. Right? The hope uh, is not dependent upon your endurance and character. The hope is dependent on the endurance and character of Christ, which is perfect. So now, realize that your sufferings are opportunities for you to grow. Your sufferings are opportunities for you to be fashioned into someone like Jesus Christ rather than to look like everyone else in the world who's trying to manage their suffering. And it's not so that you will attain the gold and be one of the few people who do. It is because God's love has already been showered upon you. That you would walk in faith. That if He has raised Jesus from the dead and He has forgiven all your sins, then surely He will also see you sanctified by His Spirit and to the finish line in that process. You uh, you may have experienced some aspect of your life in which you've, you've gone through suffering and it's produced endurance and produced character and has yielded hope. But do you really hope that God will transform you into the image of Christ and you really hope that He will bring all of His promises to fulfillment or on a day-to-day basis do your actions and your thoughts continually testify against you that your hope is found elsewhere? Isn't that the, the challenge of walking the Christian walk, of walking faithfully with Jesus, that our hope is always put on challenge? We're always drawn to hope in other things rather than to hope in Christ. How can we be sure of this hope? Well, it depends on the truth of verse 6. That while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Though you were an enemy, though you were ungodly, Christ died for you so that you could be forgiven and not only forgiven, but reinstated as a child of God. Have you seen Tangled? Boys and girls? Yes? Okay. So in Tangled, which is Disney's version of the Rapunzel story, you have uh, Rapunzel, 
who is kidnapped as a little baby by one bad lady, Mother Gothel, takes her because she now has the power of the sunflower thing. You sing the song and she can heal things, right? I have seen it, although it's been a little while. And so she gets kidnapped and she gets... She gets trapped in this world in which she believes that Mother Gothel is her real mother. And she believes that Mother Gothel really has her best interest in mind because Mother Gothel says, you are special. You are unique, but if we were to share this with the world, then the world would take advantage of you. So you have to stay here. It is the safest and best place for you. And boys and girls, was Mother Gothel being truthful? No. She's a mean lady. And Mother Gothel is a pretty good picture of sin. We have a tendency to think of sin as simply something that we do wrong, but for Paul, throughout his letters, sin is something that is much bigger. Sin is a force. It's a presence. It's cosmic. And it is very intent on keeping you trapped in a certain world in which it tells you that what it wants for you is the best thing for you. And you will delight in the things that it has to offer, and it will protect you and keep you safe. But at the end of the day, it's all of a lie. And Jesus has broken into that lie and has revealed truth to you right? so that sin can be defeated, so that death can be defeated, and that we can understand uh, what reality really is according to the one who made reality, according to God and His love for us. And so eventually... Mother Gothel is killed and Rapunzel can return home. That's what happens in Jesus' death and resurrection. Sin is defeated. Death is put down so that we can return home. And this is what justification by faith means for us individually. What does it mean for God's story at large? Well, by this point, you should see something. Or hopefully, let me draw it very clearly for you. Paul is shifting in the midst of his letter to the Romans. And he's making a very important shift that you you really have to capture to understand how Romans is going to flow. We said at the beginning of today that Romans is about two roads. Paul examines the Gentile road, which leads to uh, God handing them over to sin and destruction. Then he examines the Jewish road, which ends up in them being condemned by the very law that they think will save them because they can't be faithful. And so what we realize as Paul moves forward is that both of the two roads that he starts with lead to death and destruction. But now when we get to chapter 5, Paul's saying, yeah, now there's a new two roads. And this is this is leading us in. He's about to talk about two roads, one represented by Adam and one represented by Jesus. And now we realize that the Gentile road and the Jewish road prior to Jesus were one and the same road. It's a road that's characterized by trying to find salvation in anything other than God, and it leads only to death and destruction. It's a road that is characterized by the first man, Adam. And now Paul says the second road is actually the road that's characterized by the second man, who's Jesus. And that road is the only road that gives life. Very tricky. Two roads that end up being one road, and now there are two roads again. I love Paul. So in verse 12, Paul pulls back all right, to consider how this happens, how Jesus becomes better than Adam, and how he produces a new road that actually leads, leads to salvation. Uh, what happens in Jesus is similar, but it's different than what happens to Adam. Right? Paul says that, listen, uh, look at Adam. It only took one transgression for all the world to be put in condemnation. Through that, sin enters the world, and the world becomes corrupt. 
You know, if you put one nasty bacterium in a glass of water, something like Giardia, that whole glass of water is ruined. You're not going to be like, oh, I can drink around the bacterium, right? It's done. When sin enters the world, it's done. It's contaminated. The whole thing is spoiled to a certain extent. That's what happens in Adam. But what is different is that by the time you get to Jesus, millions and billions of transgressions have occurred. It only took one to spoil creation. Now we have millions and billions, and that's how big the free grace of righteousness in Christ is because it handles all of them. All of them before and all of them after. One New Testament story uh, or uh, commentator had a story that I thought really got at quite nicely the idea um, of what's going on here at the in the second half of Romans chapter five, and he tells this imaginary story of the sculptor who lived in a town and he had been commissioned to make a statue, and the statue was of uh, someone who had organized the coast guard of this coastal town. He was a rather famous sailor and individual in the community, and he became even more famous when, during a winter storm, he single-handedly rescued a, uh, a boat of people who were certain to perish apart from his rescue. So he's a noble figure in the community, and the community wanted to honor him, so they went to the leading sculptor in town, and they commissioned a sculpture of him to honor him. And it was beautiful. The town celebrated the sculptor and the individual, but it wasn't long before trouble came. Uh, it was a year later that uh, a, a group of, of young boys who were uh, noisy and up to no good were going around town and doing a pub crawl, and eventually, uh, after the pubs have crawled, happened upon the statue in the middle of the town square. And having done a good bit of vandalism already, they decided to take turns running and leaping in the air and kicking it with both feet at one time. Well, the statue wasn't built to sustain this kind of punishment. And so after a time, the statue falls and smashes to pieces. Well, the town is obviously upset, but they're determined not to be beaten. And so they go to the sculptor and they say, we want to recast the exact same statue. Can you put it back up for us? And the sculptor says, yes, it's not a problem, but this time let's make it better. It will look like it did before, but we're going to make it stronger. It's going to be made out of better stuff and we'll, we'll anchor it to the ground in a superior way so that it won't be affected by such damage in the same way. And this is what Paul is trying to describe in the second half of Romans 5. That Adam was the first man, but he was inadequate. He was inferior. He succumbed to the punishing uh, damage of temptation in this world. But God sent another man the man Jesus Christ, and it is this man who would navigate that temptation with great success and with great victory. He would be built of sterner stuff. And it is in Romans 5 that our entire hope depends on the grace of the righteousness that is given to us from Him. Paul says that sin reigns in death. That is this road, the road of Gentile and Jew prior to Christ, the road of seeking salvation in anything outside of Christ. It is a road that is characterized by fear and death because nothing on that road saves. But on this road, the road that is characterized by the new man, Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead, who gives a free gift to those who are bound up with him, who are united to him of righteousness, it is characterized by life because Christ is the one who saves. 
on this road, no matter what different path you take, you save yourself. Or you appeal to something that cannot save you to save you. But on this road, you appeal to the one man who's been raised from the dead, which is the evidence and testimony that he will indeed redeem and raise you from the dead. What difference does it make? How do you walk that road of joy rather than walking that road of death? Think about what Paul talked about in the first uh, in the first aspect as he opened the passage. He said, "By as a result of justification by faith, you have peace here. Peace because Jesus has accomplished what you cannot. But if you walk that road, you will have anything but peace. How much anxiety and tension do you have? Right." Does this road characterize your walk or does the peace of Christ characterize the road that you walk? The second thing that Paul brought out was that we would have unhindered access to the Father. If you're walking this road and realize that Jesus Christ's righteousness has been granted to you, then you realize at a deep level that there is nothing that should be hindered me from running to the Father and, and throwing myself in His arms because that's how He's approached you. But if you're hesitant to run to the Father, if you have the tendency to try to deal with your own sin before you go and ask for forgiveness so that you can feel a little bit better about it, then realize that you're spending a lot more time walking the road of death than you are the road of life. The third thing that Paul told us is true about justification by faith is that it brings boasting. It brings rejoicing. It brings exuberance and joy. How joyful is your life? It is a life characterized by Again, by worry, by frustration, by anger. It's the road of death. Or are you on a road in which you realize that in every suffering that you may experience, God can work His grace in you and that suffering can be changed into endurance and endurance character and character hope. And the more hope you have, the more joy you will have. Those are the options. The two roads that will exist throughout this life until Jesus comes back again. Be honest with your heart this morning. If you evaluate it in the light of Romans 5 and the things that Paul has put forward, are you spending more time on the road of Adam or more time on the road of Jesus? Jesus has come to you and there's nothing hindering you except what you would put in the way to walking on the road of Jesus. So let's run to Him. And repent of those things that we hold so dearly and hold selfishly. And cry out to Him. Simply say, Jesus, help us to not put things in the way, but instead to realize that all of our righteousness comes from You. And it's on that road of life that we want to be found. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your very abundant grace to us, that You have rescued us, though enemies of You. There is no greater act of love in the history of the world, nor will there be. We can barely fathom the sacrifice that is involved in what You have done. And so we we have to settle for what we can do in our finiteness, which is to declare Your praise, to boast of what You have done, and to confess with our mouth and hopefully with our hearts that we may rely on nothing else but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the ways in which we are too much like Adam. And help us to be renewed, to be more like Jesus. We pray that You would establish 
our feet firmly on that path. That we realize that we do not have to accomplish our justification, but that we are already justified. And that we may trust You to bring all of that to completion. Father, I pray for everyone gathered here this morning. For our children, for our grandparents, for those in the middle. Help us to throw ourselves into Your arms for what You have done in Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.